You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. On this week's episode, we'll be taking a look at the fortress that Australia has built around itself and ask, will its zero COVID policy ever end? Plus, we'll also be asking whether it's racist to point out Britain's changing demographics. And finally, we'll be looking at whether trivia is just another way for men to compete with each other. First up, has Australia trapped itself in its quest to eradicate COVID? Only a quarter of the population is double jabbed. And while hotel quarantine is as strict as ever, the country can't seem to get itself out of a cycle of lockdowns. Alexander Downer, the former Australia High Commissioner, takes a look at Australia's strategy during this pandemic. And he joins the podcast now. I'm also joined by the Liberal Democrat MP Leila Moran, chair of the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus, who has been championing a zero-COVID strategy. Alexander, we have this image of Aussies as being tough and resilient, but you say in your piece this week that COVID has actually betrayed a different part of the character. How so exactly? Yes, well, Australians look uncertain and timid in this environment instead of doing what I thought Australia was going to do initially, which was to take a whole series of precautionary measures, including in relation to its external borders, and then make sure the health system was able to cope with a disease which sadly is endemic. The state governments in Australia just completely panicked and started to pursue a policy of of zero COVID, much supported by the public, much supported by the public. So any dissent from this quixotic policy of pursuing zero COVID, any dissent was strongly condemned by the public and the media simply didn't ask questions about whether this policy was sustainable. So the consequence of that has been that the states have gone into these series of lockdowns month after month after month, whenever there is an outbreak of COVID, sometimes just one or two cases, And the lockdowns, of course, are at huge cost to Australia's traditional civil liberties and at huge financial cost to the national budget and at huge cost to people's health and children's education in other areas. And so people don't care. And the ultimate end of this story is that the lockdowns postpone the problem. They don't solve the problem and they impose huge pain. So the whole thing is proving to be very, if I could put it uh, this way, very unfortunate. Leila, last summer, you called for the government to adopt a zero COVID strategy. A year on and looking at what's going on in Australia, do you still think that that's the best way forward? So first of all, at the time that the people like myself and the all party group was calling for Uh, what was effectively a zero COVID strategy, I strongly believe that that was the right thing to do. We didn't know a lot about the virus. We didn't have vaccines. 
we knew that a lot of people were going to die. And I envy, actually, places like New Zealand and Australia because I speak a lot in my role as chair of the All Party Group to families who are bereaved. And for every one person who's died in Australia per million, 50 have died here. Our current death toll is over 132,000 people and all the families that have been left behind. And you just have to speak to those families who look across at what could have been done and how their loved ones might well have been saved at the beginning. And they would agree, and I certainly agree, that that was the right strategy then. But two things have changed now. And I think, you know, to your question, moving forward, I actually have now moved to the view based on evidence that we heard in the all party group just before we went on recess, that zero COVID is now sadly no longer attainable. And the reason for that is two things. But the primary one is the variance. The zero COVID strategy would have worked. And if everyone had done it, we would all be in a much better place. And the original virus before the Kent variant, the first, the best, the alpha, well, not the best, because actually we've now got Delta. And the thing about Delta is it vaccine escapes. So even though we've got vaccine, unfortunately, people still, even if they've been double vaccinated, can still get the virus and sadly still pass away. So whilst it's provided some protection, the fact that we do have elements of vaccine escape does mean that we have come to the conclusion that it is now endemic. They're probably in some places, and it's not for me to speak about what we need to do in Australia, but in terms of what we need to do here, fundamentally, it has changed the goalposts and we need to adapt accordingly. Alexander, Britain has obviously had a rough time with COVID, as Leila points out, but it is the vaccines that are now helping us go back to normal. What is the approach to vaccines at the moment in Australia? How is the rollout going there? Well, it's going okay now, but this has been a very sorry story. Australia, the federal government, got off to a good start by negotiating an arrangement with AstraZeneca to manufacture AstraZeneca in Australia so there'd be no shortage of the vaccine. And off they went and they started to vaccinate people. But the states are pursuing, through all of this, their zero COVID strategies, which I've described already. And as the AstraZeneca was being produced and the government very cautiously and I have to say slowly began the process of rollout, then these stories emerged of AstraZeneca being linked to blood clots and death from these blood clots. So, I mean, you know, the fact is that AstraZeneca was obviously no more dangerous or was less dangerous than taking the contraceptive pill and, you know, all sorts of things can cause blood clots and um, anyway let's not go into all of that but there was a huge scare campaign across Australia and given that the incidence of COVID was very low and there were all of these stories in the media about huge risks of AstraZeneca people just didn't want to get vaccinated they thought well it's uh, I'm not going to get COVID and there's almost no COVID here and why would I take the risk of getting a blood clot And so the whole process just ground more or less, not literally, but more or less to a halt. Until more recently, people have started to realise that vaccinations are are going to mitigate the impact of COVID and are going to be a huge help. And the governments in Australia have been saying, well, when we achieve 70 or 80% vaccination rate, I think by that they mean of adults vaccination rate, 
then we will be able to avoid lockdowns and all of the kind of restrictions that we've had. So the vaccination is now rolling out very fast and extremely fast. And day by day, huge numbers of people are getting vaccinated. They're being encouraged to do that, partly now by the fact that finally people have woken up to the fact that through lockdowns and all of these sorts of things, you can only postpone the spread of COVID. You can't stop it. And how do Australians see Britain's approach? I mean, I, I think at the start we were perhaps seen as sort of handling it quite badly, but has that changed with the vaccine rollout? It has. I mean, it started off that um, I suppose everybody was in this situation. The UK looked to Australians a bit chaotic and uncertain in its response. And so did, um, well, America looked very chaotic early on in its response. Looked it. And, and the European countries as well. So from Australia's point of view, the country was like in New Zealand, the country was sealed off and we didn't seem to be having much of a problem, but the UK had all these outbreaks and so on. People died with COVID. But now there is a view that the UK has been incredibly successful with its not just vaccine rollout, but of course it's developing vaccines as well. And it's been a world leader in terms of vaccination rollout. And yes, I mean, I live in the UK and some of my family live in Australia. And my daughter, for example, and her husband and her children are in lockdown in Melbourne. And we're on holiday in France. You know, it's, a, it's, it's turned around. They're thinking in Australia, well, maybe they worked out a formula over there in the UK, which is better than the formula we have in Australia. They are beginning to think that. I would say that it's not an entrenched view. Leila, Australia obviously managed to seal itself off, as did New Zealand, and, and perhaps it was easier to do so because of their geographical position. Britain obviously is, is, is a kind of very different island and, and has a very multicultural population. Do you think zero COVID could ever have been achieved or do you think it just would not have really worked if, unless we'd really shut our borders, which never really seemed completely possible? I actually would push back and say it was possible and certainly in that first lockdown that March lockdown there was a sense from central government that you know as a population we wouldn't be able to hack it we wouldn't be able to do more than you know three or four weeks of lockdown that it would be really hard to persuade people and it was really such a shame because at that moment there were always two routes that could have been taken at that point there was the sort of southeast asian route you know, you look to Taiwan, you know, New Zealand's a good example, and Australia as well, where zero COVID at the time with the original version of COVID was entirely possible to have dampened down. And then we could have developed the vaccines. As an Oxford MP, I'm particularly proud because it's many of my constituents who are directly involved in the creation of that and the millions of lives they've saved across the world. But we didn't have to lose all those lives first. So the best of both worlds, it strikes me, is what Australia is, is now beginning to do. And I do think perhaps, uh, you know, Alexander, it's really interesting to hear your characterization of how long it's taken to start to get people vaccinated. Actually, if they can get to the high numbers of proportion of population vaccinated as we have here, they've essentially achieved the best of both worlds, which was in the first instance, less deaths. If you look at the GDP figures for New Zealand and Australia, 
Yes, they've had multiple lockdowns, but overall, the number of weeks that they were locked down is far fewer than we had in the UK. According to the World Bank, GDP fell in Australia by 1.5%, but ours in the UK fell 10.2%. The forecast in Australia is to grow by 4.6%. So overall, they're going to end up ahead. The UK, on the other hand, is forecast to grow by 6.6%, notwithstanding the success of the vaccine rollout. So overall, we are behind. So the idea that health and wealth are polar opposites and, you know, you have save one and you lose the other actually is patently not borne out by the statistics and by the numbers. And I wish Australia and New Zealand well. I it would encourage everyone to get vaccinated with whichever one is available to you as quickly as possible everywhere in the world. And I do believe, however, that there was a different path we could have taken in the UK, which would have led to much less strife in all sorts of aspects, not just people's lives, but also the economy. Just finally, Alexander, I'd like to talk about the Australians who are the diaspora, who aren't able to get back to Australia and also New Zealand. I know you're based here. We also have Sasha O'Sullivan writing in this week's issue. She's also based here. She can't get back. One of the points that she makes is that she she sort of observes that few Australians seem willing to stick up for those of us abroad, despite the fact that Australia has long had this sort of great sort of tradition of traveling around the world and, and you'll find Australians all over the world. What do you think about that? I mean, do you think the mindset is starting to shift and people are realizing that actually people should be allowed back home or is, is the border still very much sealed off to them? I think the mindset in Australia is shifting in relation to zero COVID, as I explained. And so they've realised that that is an absurd policy. I mean, increasingly, the public are coming to that conclusion and endless lockdowns. I mean, people are starting to think that they're not cost-free, that there are huge consequences that flow from these lockdowns. But I do not think they care about Australians who are abroad or Australians who want to reunite with their loved ones. I mean, one of you mentioned that the UK is a multicultural society. So is Australia. 26, 27% of Australians were born overseas. And what does that tell you? That tells you that huge numbers of Australians have relatives, loved ones, friends in other countries, um, and they want to see them and be united with them. So, again, this is another example of a policy which might seem fine in the short term, but in the medium term is is clearly not sustainable. Australia, like New Zealand, these countries cannot cut themselves off from the rest of the world forever. But the public aren't in that space yet. Alexander, Leila, thank you for joining. Next, Lionel Shriver has been reading up the latest reports from Migration Watch, which show the changing demographics of Britain as the proportion of white people continues to fall. Lionel argues that the question of ethnic makeup matters to people across the world, but only in Britain do we consider it a potentially bigoted line of inquiry. Lionel joins the podcast now, together with Dr. Remy Adekoya from the University of York and author of Biracial Britain. Lionel, can you start by telling us what these reports from Migration Watch conclude? Well, in the big picture, in only 20 years, uh, the foreign population that is foreign-born has doubled. Although the percentages of the population uh, still seem not that high, still 79% of the country is white British. Uh, When you look at who the immigrants are, they're 90% under the age of 45. 90%. So that has huge demographic implications and 
And furthermore, uh, immigrants tend to have larger families. That that birth rate tends to come down as they remain in the country, but uh, especially on arrival, it, it, it's usually uh, considerably higher than the native population. And what that means is that between those two statistics, the number of non-white Britons, non-native white Britons diminishes very quickly. And I, I tried to put these statistics out as neutrally as I could, but what was interesting about even writing it was that it was it's it felt perilous, even say even repeating the numbers with with no judgment whatsoever was like oh this is incendiary do we really want to go there I find that alone very interesting. Remy, do you think it is incendiary to state those statistics? No, I don't think it is. So there's a couple of things, and one thing I strongly agreed with regarding uh, Leonel's um, article, and another thing I'd like to also discuss with her here. So first thing, it is true, as she says, that people tend to be territorial. It is true that Kenyans resent Somali immigrants very often. We've had attacks by black South Africans on black Zimbabweans in history, and even Nigeria, the country where I grew up. In the 1980s, the Nigerian government expelled a million Ghanaians who were living in Nigeria, and they expelled them to the chairs of the crowds. There were, you know, Nigerian crowds, you know, cheering at the expulsion of their Ghanaian uh, African brothers, you know, who were sent back home. So this is how people are. This is the truth. If we look at uh, nativist attitudes, if you look, for instance, there's a 2021 Ipso Mori poll out, which shows, for instance, when people were asked the question in various countries, do you think it would be a good idea for immigration to be stopped altogether to your country? 70% of Turkish people said yes. Good idea. Stop immigration altogether to our country. In countries like Malaysia, South Africa, Colombia, I think it was Peru, the numbers were in the 50s. So roughly half the population said it would be a good idea to stop immigration altogether. In the UK, the number is 31%. In America, the number was 31% also. So a third of the population. So we actually find out that, you know, contrary to much of the sort of popular narrative out there, Western societies, and let's, let's you know, be clear what we're talking about, white majority Western societies do very often tend to be more tolerant than many some other societies in other regions of the world. Okay, so this is a fact, and this is something we should deal with. What I did want to um, discuss with Lana is because, you know, she mentioned that 79% of the population, uh, according to those estimates, those are estimates, of course, not official figures, uh, will be white British. And, you know, and fair enough, that's, of course, a declining proportion. They are. That's what it yes, is. Yes, 79% are, are, are white British. But what I find interesting and a discussion which I think might be sort of, some might find uncomfortable to have, but I think it's worth having, is if we look at the migrant population, we're essentially talking 21% of a migrant population. But out of that 21% of a migrant population, about over 6% are other whites. Okay. So essentially, mostly European citizens, you know, from the EU. So if we're talking about ethnic minority, non-white population in the country, it's still at about 15%, which generally was the case in the 2011 census. So more or less, you had 85% white population and 15% non-white population. So that hasn't really shifted that strongly so far. But I do think it is also worth having discussions about, okay, what kind of immigrants do tend to assimilate more easily within British society. 
which kinds of immigrants do tend to not assimilate that easily? Why? What are the reasons? And, you know, and we should be able to have these discussions. Okay. And yeah, so that's something also I think is worth, uh, is worth mentioning. Lionel, do you want to respond to that? Oh, well, I mean, you said it was awkward, and it is. So that if we're going to talk about which populations assimilate more easily, it's going to be Christian populations and, and whiter populations. If we're going to be that way. And that's awkward. I think it's probably true, and I'm not saying that, that the British is, are rampantly and systemically racist, but I think that white Europeans that come into the UK are a little more welcome. They're considered more kindred, if you will. And I think that, that they are, you know, in a civil, larger civilizational sense, they are. And, and, you know, that's played a big part in the politics of immigration in the United States because the U.S. has a vanity about itself that it is a land of immigrants. And so, you know, when these new waves come in, especially since the 1990s, you realize that the waves of immigration that have historically come in the United States have all been from Europe. So we were dealing with an, a, a surprisingly homogeneous population, even though we thought, oh, we took in the Irish, we took in the Italians, and we, we thought they were inferior at first, and then they integrated seamlessly into our society. Well, one of the reasons they did so is that they come from a very similar place. Even if they had different languages, there was a, a, a you know, it's on that civilizational level, they were still relatively kindred. And now the United States is having to deal with real diversity, which means that a lot of these groups are coming in from, you know, genuinely foreign parts of the world. And we're discovering that it's, that's, harder to pull off. Now, I think Brexit has thrown up a really interesting paradox, okay? Now, what was happening prior to Brexit was that most of the immigration to the UK was by Europeans. The same Christian Europeans who say, tend to assimilate more easily. By actually voting for Brexit, if we now look at the figures from last year, the proportion of migration to the UK is now more non-EU. So there's actually now more people coming from Asia and Africa as opposed to the EU than before Brexit. So the question now is moving forward, the UK's immigration policy post-Brexit, how is it going to respond to this? What is it going to do about this? Because the reality is there's not many Germans or French people who are going to be ready to jump through hoops just to be able to come work here in the UK. Okay, because they can work in Germany or France and earn very good salaries, similar or maybe even more than they're earning here. But there are people in the developing world, in much poorer countries, in Asia or Africa, who will be ready to jump through those hoops and who do have whatever qualifications you might decide, you might decide to put up there. So even if the UK says it wants to import highly skilled workers, there are lots of highly skilled workers in Asian countries and in African countries who will fulfill all the requirements you need and who will be ready to jump through all those hoops in order to be able to come there because here they can have a much higher standard of living than they could have over there. This is the reality the British government is going to be dealing with now, you know. So the question is, what is it going to do about that? Just finally, Remy, one of the points that Lion also makes is that white Brits, for, for them to confront becoming a minority in the UK is seen as, as racist and, and almost beyond the pale. But, but do you think people should feel comfortable talking about this? 
I definitely think people should feel comfortable talking about this. I prefer if people, you know, talk about this and express their real feelings rather than pretend outside that they're okay with everything going on, but be fuming and seething on the inside. Okay, because that's not going to work out in the long run. You know, that might work out in the short run for us now. Okay, nobody's talking, nobody's complaining, but in the long run, it's not going to work out. What are we going to have in the long run? We're going to have populist parties that are going to rise up and say, oh, well, you know, we need to do something about all these immigrants who are coming here and, you know, changing our culture and changing our identity and all that. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there'll be a, a, an election and people will be like, oh, my God, that party got 25 percent, 30 percent of the vote. How did that happen? Remy, I completely agree with you. And we are developing a kind of two-tiered dialogue about a lot of subjects, but especially this one. And mm -hmm. everyone knows what you're supposed to say and think. And they parrot those views, those open-minded, you know, tolerant views. Diversity is wonderful. We welcome our multicultural society. It's so great to have these ethnic restaurants on the corner, <laughs> which is for a lot of white people what immigration is all about. And then behind closed doors, we say completely different things. And that kind of hypocrisy, it's now institutionalized, but it's not as if those real feelings are going away. And the more they're made to be unacceptable, the more dangerous they are. Yeah, I agree. Going back again, you know, it's all about, for me, universalizing the issue. It's all about showing that, look, you know, like we said at the beginning, this is the way people are. This is not, you know, a white thing or a black thing or a brown thing, okay? People tend to behave in similar fashion, in similar circumstances, whether they're white or black or whatever skin color they are. So it's, we need to start with that. You know, that needs to be the starting point of the discussion. If we accept that starting point of the discussion, then we can talk without white people being afraid that, oh, you know, but if I say this, you know, are they going to call me a racist? You know, because we can't, it doesn't make sense for us to have a world in which white people are held to higher moral standards than anybody else. Especially on, on issues around immigration and race, okay? So that, oh, uh, Turkish people, 70% can say, oh, they don't want immigration. And nobody's going to be writing, you know, blistering op-eds in the New York Times about, you know, how racist Turkish people are. But if a white society was to say anything similar, you know, we'd be having, you know, dissertations and, you know, th master's thesis and, you know, books and films made about it. Like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, that doesn't make sense. That can't work. You know, if we're talking about fair, then we're being fair, you know, or else, you know, we're just actually, you know, uh, being hypocrites here and playing that. Um, I don't like to use that term, um, uh, you know, but playing that card of, you know, of leveraging us what we've suffered in the past uh, to sort of, you know, as a moral baseball bat against white people, you know, to make sure, you know, you can't say certain things because if you do, you know, then we'll bring up all those things you've done in the past. We'll bring up slavery, we'll bring up colonialism, we'll bring up racism, and we'll bring up all sorts of things to make you feel bad. No, you know, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't get us anywhere in the long run. Lionel and Remy, thank you very much for joining. And finally, Mark Mason wants to set the record straight. He's a man who loves trivia, but he argues in this week's issue that he doesn't engage with his male friends over the issue because they're being competitive, but purely because he loves to share information. Mark joins the podcast now, together with Anna Tashinsky, a researcher for QI, who listeners might know from the trivia podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. Mark, tell us about your conversation with your friend Marcus, which is what you start your piece off with this week. Yeah, well, the idea for the piece came from a lunch that we were at with Marcus and I were there and a couple of, um, there was a woman there who'd known us both for a long time and a woman who didn't know us. And at one point, Ray Charles cropped up in conversation and it cropped up that Ray Charles used to fly his own plane. 
which obviously everybody's well, what a blind man flying his own plane. And yeah, they'd get to cruising altitude and Ray Charles would go up to the front and say to the pilot, right, I want to fly it now. And, you know, the pilot would let him do it when there was nothing within miles and miles, either vertically or horizontally, that he could hit. People used to leave Ray Charles's band rather than be <laughs> flown by the blind guy that was paying them their wages. They were so terrified. And eventually someone said to him one day, why do you do it? Why do you insist on flying the plane? And Ray Charles said, because it's mine, which is the sort of character Ray Charles was. Now, Marcus mentioning that reminded me that Ray Charles used to drive his own car as well. And I had a story about that and how it crashed one day and the chauffeur got into trouble and the police wouldn't believe him that Ray Charles had been driving it. So that cropped up and then that led to Marcus saying something else. And it was one of those facts where, and I'm sure Anna, well, I have been involved in conversations like this with Anna before, so I know exactly what she's like. It just one fact leads to another. And at that point, Susie, who did know us, leaned across to Kira, who didn't know us and said, you get used to this, they're like this, it's male competitiveness. And I said, actually, Susie, it's the opposite. It's not, we, neither of us wants to win, neither of us wants to come up with the fact that we'll beat the other. That's not what it's about. It's simply about the joy of sharing these incredible, you know, we both had a fact about Ray Charles being difficult with piloting or driving vehicles that he owned. And that cropped up as, not as a competitive thing, but simply as the joy of sharing. And neither of us wants to win. It never wants to be the stage and all the QILs conversations are like this, their podcasts are like this, conversations you have with them or people like that, my friends that are like that, you simply want it to carry on forever, sharing facts. It's the, it's the opposite of competitive. Anna, you spend a lot of your time podcasting and talking about trivia with three male co-hosts. What do you think? Do you think there is a very competitive element to trivia? I think there's definitely a competitive aspect to a lot of quizzes. And I think Mark and I are probably the same. I don't really have much of a competitive streak, but I take immense joy. Obviously, we've both devoted our lives to it in just discussing and sharing and exchanging interesting, bizarre facts with other people and learning from them. And that's not competitive. But I do understand the confusion between that and the quizzer mentality of trying to outfact each other. And I do think that that can be extremely tedious and quite excluding but like Mark mentions as well in that article I think I think it was Stephen Fry in fact I think you might have quoted from a QI book Stephen Fry writing in one of the QI books that saying to someone oh god don't you know so much is like saying to someone with a bit of sand on their bodies oh god have aren't don't you own so much sand and it's like compared to all the knowledge in the world you don't know anything and I think Mark and I and at QI we all are very aware of that that we know nothing in relation to how much there is to know and so that we're definitely not trying to say we have this huge quantity of knowledge that we're trying to show off but I think it can come across like that still I think there's a difference between knowing that intellectually and then sitting in a pub sometimes with someone else who knows a lot and then with two other people who they just don't happen to be trivia collectors you know they've they've got other hobbies they might know an enormous amount about quantum physics or about aeroplanes or something but they don't happen to be trivia nuts and so that feels like sometimes you can exclude them and I've de I'm sure I've done that to people and I think especially with women where because of sociological factors that go back hundreds and hundreds of years women are probably more prone to think I don't really know enough maybe I can't contribute that much to this and feel a little bit underconfident about that and then as a sort of defense be like oh god you're being really competitive and it's sort of reaction to feeling slightly excluded so look I agree with Mark and also I can see the women's point <laughs> Mark whilst it might not necessarily be competitive and, and no one's actually trying to win do you think there's an element to a lot of this trivia which is kind of a form of showing off 
<laughs> it can be, as as Anna says, with the wrong sort of people. And of course, Anna and I are perfectly I would agree well with adjusted, that. Yeah. charming, um, socially adept winners in in all <laughs> in all aspects of life. That we're we're not like that. It's simply the excitement. But I understand exactly what Anna says about how it can come across, and very often it it is women that it's coming across to. It's the man doing the fact and the woman getting the wrong impression. It, it can come across as arrogance, but. Anna, all the QI facts and everything Anna's ever told me and any of the elves and anyone that's doing trivia for the right reason, you're not even doing it. It's just stuff that sticks in your brain. And the only facts that you remember are the funny or the amazing ones. You're not setting out to remember somebody's birth date or, you know, it's, it's not interesting in its own sake, for its own sake. And I've just been reminded of this. So I happen to, I've got the piece up on the website to remind myself of the drivel that I put in my article. I always need to have a copy of it there. And of course, because it's on the website, somebody has put a comment on. The first comment on the piece is, do you know, they're quoting Peter Cook as E.L. Wistie. So this is obviously a fake fact, the sort of spoof <laughs> fact he used to come up with. So they've come up with, do you know there's over four miles of tubing in your stomach? Now that's one of Peter Cook's fake facts, but that reminds me of the genuine fact, and I'm sure Anna knows this as well, that in your body, there are 60,000 miles of blood vessels. Now, I learned that from a kid's book when I was reading with my son a few years ago. And you think, no, surely that can't be true. But you go and look it up and there are 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. Now, if you get told that and then you don't remember it, then there's something wrong with you because that's just a stag. <laughs> it's a staggering fact. It's just incredible. That's over nearly three times around the world. Yeah, yeah. It would take you a long time to drive around your own blood vessels. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Although I suspect that you retain the details better than I do. I actually have quite a poor memory, which is why I part of the reason why I have to count myself out of competitiveness. So <laughs> I will remember that there is hell of a lot of length of blood vessels in the body. And I probably will forget that <laughs> thing of my Mark, what about pub quizzes? Is that where trivia does become competitive? I know you're involved in various pub quizzes. Yes, well, it does. Again, in the wrong way, it does. There's a pub quiz that Marcus and I do in north london called the prince of wales in highgate which is quite a famous one and marcus has done books that's a great quiz yeah it's a fantastic quiz and i in fact I, the elves came along once and they've been a few times but the first time is when i took them along and people normally come up with cryptic or humorous team names and i thought i wonder what the elves are going to call themselves because if people know that the qi elves are playing a pub quiz with them everyone's just going to walk out because they think there's no way we're going to win and then the, i was marking the sheets because i was reading out the questions the, the first round came in and the qi elves team name was the qi elves <laughs> <laughs> and then brilliantly they didn't win because it's not about winning and there are some people who go to that quiz and to other quizzes who are doing it for the wrong reason. They are the ones that take part in the World Quizzing Championships, which is where you do need to know every capital city around the world and the highest mountains and every composer ever and all the stuff that is not interesting in its own sake. You do get the odd person like that at pub quizzes, but I would contend that the best quizzes and the best quiz masters are about the stuff that's interesting, the stuff you can work out. Yes. You know, the, the stuff that's... All the stuff that you can't know, but it's just fun to guess. Like a 50-50 after news is who was taller, Laurel or Hardy? And you, you, wouldn't, know, you wouldn't believe the conversation. And I can see Anna now, is hands behind her, she's trying to work it out. And people I'm go, trying to picture them. Is um, it tall and thin and, or fat and... Is it tall and thin or fat and tall? Or what, you know, you're trying to... I'm, on, sure, I'm sure Laurel was, the, was short, and, short and tubby. I'm going to go Hardy. Who, who is it? 
Who are you saying's the fat one for a start? I'm saying Laurel is shorter. Stan is shorter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Because it's thin and short, yeah. Oh, is he thin and short? Well, you know Laurel was the thin one, yeah? Ah, <laughs> I, I was imagining short and tubby and tall and thin. No, well, it's the other... No, because well, Laurel was... Well, Laure- got the right answer, but I've uh, Well, I've yeah, but for the wrong reason. Everyone yeah. knows that Laurel was the thin one and that Hardy, Hardy was the fat one. Ollie was the fat one. And, but they can never remember if it's which way around was the height. And Laurel was five foot nine and Hardy was six foot one. So it was fat and tall, short and thin. Oh, there you go. There you go. That, see, I mean, this is... This is what we do, and it's very annoying. Can you, Anna, can you finish by giving us a great bit of trivia that listeners can take away? Oh, God, there's too many, and now I've done the thing that Mark was talking about where you've mentioned Stan Laurel, and I was reading about him yesterday, and I found it really amusing that he started off with a different surname, and I can't even remember what it was, but he changed his surname to Laurel because he didn't want there to be 13 letters in his full name because he thought that no one would go and see him because they'd assume it was unlucky to go and see someone with 13 letters in their name, which I find an absolutely bizarre reasoning anyway. And not only that, but Stanley Laurel still has 13 letters. So I thought, what, what an idiot that guy was. But... But no, a great, a great bit of trivia. My favourite bit of trivia that I've learned lately. I can, I can then only think of really dark stuff. You don't want something about Osama bin Laden at a time like this, do you? We can take anything on this podcast. Okay, well, I won't do my Osama bin Laden. I was reading about the Yazidi people a few days ago and I didn't know anything about them at all except you know chronically kind of persecuted have had a hellish time the last few years with ISIS and I was reading about what they believe in and in their religion they have uh, for it's all done by word of mouth so it's handed down so there's very little written down and so it really evolves and changes which makes it quite a a welcoming religion because they can adapt it and they believe that Adam had to leave paradise had to leave the garden of Eden because a peacock uh, came and pecked a hole in his bottom. He didn't have a bottom at the time. A peacock came and pecked him an anus, at which point he had to do a poo. But you can't poo in the Garden of Eden. And so he had to leave the Garden of Eden because, you know, you can't, you can't mess up the Garden of Eden. So he had to leave, go outside the boundaries of it to do a poo. And then the peacock was like, ha, you've left now. You're out. You've fallen. And that was the story of how man fell from the Garden of Eden which is my favourite creation story so far. Mark and Anna, thank you for joining. And that's everything this week. If you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've discussed and more. We've got Matt Ridley writing about the latest evidence supporting the COVID lab leak theory. Antonia Fraser writes the diary. And we profile the last warlord holding out against the Taliban in Afghanistan. And if you enjoyed the podcast, we've got a special offer for podcast listeners. And this is actually a good one. You can get 10 issues of The Spectator for just £10, as well as a free bottle of PIMS. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.